Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Experience. Is it a direct pathway to the God of the universe? Or is it simply, quote, the heart being deceitful? Can we trust our spiritual experience and which experiences are trustworthy? This topic was recommended by my guest, Dustin, and I thought it was perfect for a You Have Permission episode. But it's hard to know how to introduce Dustin Kensrue. And the reason is he exists at the intersection of multiple aspects and times of my own life. My introduction to him was through his band Thrice at the end of high school, beginning of college, around 2001-2002. I fell in love with their second, third, and fourth albums over that next six years or so. And that fourth album, around that time, is when my own band started our career, living on the road, making records full-time for an eight-year period. So even though Thrice achieved at least 10 to 20 times the success of Sherwood, we have that life experience connection. Dustin has also always been a theological thinker, uh, even quite overtly as a lyricist. And more recently, I became aware that he had changed his mind considerably on theological questions away from his former neo-Calvinist days, as in the kind of Calvinism that our recent guest Oliver Crisp warned us against, toward a more process theology view, which is much closer to my own. Despite our touring years having overlapped almost entirely, at least my eight years with his, uh, and that we were both fairly deep thinking Christians 
writing lyrics and playing in general market bands. There were not a ton of those, by the way. We never really crossed paths during my own touring years. But now, as Dustin launches his own podcast, Carry the Fire, we've been in touch. uh, And having him on the show was, for me, a no-brainer. But what if you have no context for Dustin and his musical career? Here's what you should know. Dustin is a careful thinker, and he's worth listening to for that alone. Also, his move from Reformed theology into something closer to process theology is itself interesting. Now, in this main interview today, we don't talk much about music or touring or his band Thrice, so you definitely do not need to be a fan of his music to enjoy the conversation. I meant to get to some music questions toward the end, but we didn't end up actually having time for that, so we did those questions uh, as a patron-only episode, which is now up for patrons of the show. Okay, I think that's enough introduction. Let's get into it with Dustin. Dustin, thank you so much for being here. I want to start with a couple things just so people have their bearings. Because you are a public figure and your band is so beloved, and I would say you kind of have an outsized place in the kind of deconstruction, reconstruction Christian world for whatever reasons, I asked patrons of the show for questions that I fielded through the Facebook group, and there's like maybe seven or eight of those. I'm going to try and call them out if I can when they come up. Those are going to be peppered throughout. But to start, before we get into your story, I want to kind of define some terms here. So we're talking about trusting experience, but I want to know what you mean, because you sort of floated experience as the topic to me, and I want to know what you mean by experience. Like, are we talking about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, where it's like scripture, reason, experience, and tradition? Do you mean something less robust, more robust? I do want to clarify. I think... I think- Taking your experience seriously is a better way to put it than trusting your experience. Because, I know. I know. Because your experience is just one one piece of the puzzle, right? I mean it in contrast, I think, uh, especially for your podcast, as you're talking about to Christians or former Christians or deconstructing Christians. Reconstructing Christians that they have probably been told in some way or another that their experience is not to be trusted or not to be taken seriously. And I think that's very destructive. And it, I think it took me a long time to figure that out. So, Yeah, maybe we could frame it as like a bit of a continuum. So on the, on the far left hand, you would have trusting your experience completely, mm-hmm. um, such that, you know, you can't tell me anything kind of yeah. a thing where, hey, I know what I see with my two eyes. I know what I feel. I know that God is like I feel God is or something. And then all the way on the other end, something like the fact that you're an embodied person with like emotions running and chemicals through your brain in a physical world that God created along with your body, that like all of that is completely sidelined for this interpretation of this sacred text kind of a thing where all your experiences, all your intuitions are sort of nothing compared to the the shiny pearl that that everybody thinks they've found. Yeah. And what's actually kind of weird about that, it's almost more like a circle. A lot of times the people who are so set on, you know, the only thing you can trust is whatever this revelation is, their reasoning for trusting it is not really there. It's just, well, I trust this. And so it's come all the way back around to the other side of my right. experience is the only thing that matters, but it's only in this very narrow sense. 
and that makes me disregard everything else that I experience. Oh, that's interesting. There's a way. Yeah. So I was thinking about this last night. If I were to ask someone who is a biblical inerrantist who believes that the Bible contains no real errors, it's like a pretty error free, you know, revelation from God. So what do you think the criteria are for that? Like how much digging would you need to do to determine that that's true? And, and by the way, have you done that digging with the Vedas and the Quran, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, like, have you gone through all the other possible inerrant books and sort of systematically ruled them out? And that's not as you much of a that, dig you know as it sounds no, like. You know that nobody, no, no one, no one I don't, I don't, I don't has the time you could to do find that. someone who's done that. Yeah, I mean, there are maybe a handful of scholars who are that is their job. Yeah, and but it, they're, by their they're not 70s, asking that same question, or in the same way, at least. And it's not even probably a good thing to do with your life, but it, it is the kind of thing you would need to do for a certain kind of argument that it seems like people want to make a lot of times, but it is in a sense experience, right? Their experience is that they were raised in a Christian world or converted to Christianity at some point. Yeah. And it, it gets at that both sides of that are, are not very helpful spots. Like they're very inflexible and you arrive there essentially by chance yeah i mean i grew up being pretty skeptical and questioning the things that i believed and why i believed them but i grew up in a a christian world and so the places i'm looking for answers are christian places for answers and so there's apologetics and people make arguments and yeah they can make good arguments but it's that whole idea that once you're kind of inside a certain sort of worldview it can be really nice and tidy within it as long as you don't push too hard against the edges. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I promise we're going to get to your story here, but just like the last two or three nights of my life, I kind of figured out some language for what's going on right now in my own sort of a, this new phase of deconstruction, which I did not really anticipate. And, never and the image you never do. <laughs> right. The image I came up with is like well, there was a plate of cookies on our uh, coffee table last night when we had some people over. And I was like, I was told that this plate is the whole world and that Christianity perfectly overlays over the plate. It explains everything in or on this plate. And that's the world. So Christianity explains it. What I found out is the world is actually more the size of our entire living room. <laughs> and what, I, what I'm trying to determine is if and how Christianity is actually a much bigger or more flexible thing, or if the the edges of the plate are permeable or something where, you know, like I need a different understanding of Christianity that is as wide as the living room, not as wide as the plate. And, yeah. and I'm trying to figure out on 35 different axes, you know, where, how Christianity can or can't do that. And if I can stay in the faith, it will be a faith that is as big as the room, right? As big as the world actually is. Yeah. I'm having James Kars on my podcast. I just watched a lecture he gave and it's fascinating. He he contrasts systems of belief versus systems of inquiry. And he basically says religions at their core are not systems of belief, but they spawn systems of belief. And those systems of belief are these closed things that answer everything, whereas the religion itself is initially wrestling with a mystery. And he would say religions, as well as something like uh, science, when 
properly done are both systems of inquiry that are getting at these mysteries in different ways. And so they're not opposed to each other. They're not at odds. They're just different things, um, but of the same kind. And so what you're making me think of with that is, is the plate is very much like that system of belief. It's, it's very defined. There's no like edges or ways out, but Christianity as a religion, as a, um, in that term, as a way of, uh, wrestling with a mystery, I think can be overlaid over all of it. And I, I've started yeah. to wonder, and I want to ask him about this, if it, you know, a way to, to think about uh, religions is a lens that you lay, that you see the whole picture through, right? And maybe there's different kinds of lenses, because I think maybe the system of belief is a, is a lens as well. I was thinking about this this morning, I think. I feel like this, the religions could be almost like uh, analogous to AR, where you've got a, a a picture of something and then there's things overlaid and you're like, Oh, that's cool. It's inner this thing. You mean that I'm augmented saying. reality. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so say you're looking at your phone and then it's like showing you butterflies flying across something. It's not really there, but you're like, Oh, but I see the butterflies now. Hmm. Uh, whereas a system of belief would be more like, I don't know if you've ever seen the weird videos where they train, uh, algorithms to delete things from an environment. I don't think so. It's really weird. So you can train an algorithm like, hey, here's a bunch of cars, and then take the algorithm and film an area where there's a bunch of cars, and it's trying to delete them from the scene, and it's fascinating. But I feel like sometimes systems of belief are like that, where it's looking at the world, but it's deleting things that it doesn't, it can't account for. Yes. Basically, that is the mechanism by which it perpetuates itself in some of its cruder forms, is just through sheer deletion, right? Yeah. And so that's why people say things like, I started deconstructing when I realized that all my non-Christian friends were actually good people. You go to Christians in those conservative environments, they're not going to deny that there are good people out there. But it's like an implicit thing that the, the model can't really handle there being yeah. good people out there. So even though technically it will never deny that, you pick up on that so implicitly that when you then find it, it's just a thing that had been deleted, sort of imperfectly deleted, or, yes. or like you know what I mean with the yeah, algorithm. When you, when you watch one of those videos, you'll it's a I think okay. it's a good analogy. So that guest in that interview that you're about to do for your new show, Carry the Fire, uh, which we'll talk about later, that sounds incredible. I'm gonna have to look out for that. It, it's not out yet, but let's get into some of the narrative of your life and. I want to just, if we can, use this experience question as a lens as we go through where it makes sense. So can we start with just what is the childhood faith that you were given? Uh, so I grew up in kind of a non-denom evangelical church. Where? Uh, I, it's in Irvine, California. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I still know a ton of people there, people like, you know, grew up, my parents' friends, and yeah, a lot of great people there. And a lot of good coming out of that. That's exactly how I grew up as well. California, white bread, evangelicalism. Let's fast forward to late high school, early college, I think is when you guys get going with Thrice, your band. What is important to know about that period? I kind of said this before, but just that I was always curious, skeptical. But I think part of the issue was like I was so trained also in the idea of... of um, I mean, it's a natural want to want certainty, but it's also reinforced, I think, within uh, structures. So even when I, you know, I'd, I'd get skeptical and I would go and I'd be like, I don't understand 
whatever. And I'd go and research it until I felt like, okay, I, I have good answers, right? But it's essentially, it's still just propping up the thing that you were already in. You're like, oh my gosh, it's falling over. I need to prop it up. You prop it up and you move on. I had like a large faith doubt kind of period in my early 20s. And the thing that really screwed me up was I was not, I mean, I'd been given a bunch of like young earth creationism stuff as a kid and dug into all that. I was like, okay. And it never sat super great with me. And then I ended up really rejecting that stuff. And then that threw me for a loop on how to interpret scripture because I hadn't been given tools to understand that this could be read in a variety of ways and has always been read in a variety of ways. And so you're faced with this kind of false binary of it's either true this way or it's not true at all. Uh, you know, no one taught me, oh, this is a different genre here. This is poetry. This right. is whatever. Yeah. And so I didn't know what to do with that and just kind of paralyzed me. And this kind of ties into the, this idea of carrying the fire in a certain sense of, uh, you know, holding on to the good, the true and the beautiful. Those things are just foundational to, and this gets back to experience too. I don't know what to make of experience if I don't understand some innate value in the good, the true and the beautiful. Like that's, I've realized that's more bedrock than almost anything else because I, I can't even, I can't begin to make sense of things. That's just how I experience the world. So I got to the point where I was like, well, I feel like my choices are, I toss those and I'm just a, a materialist, whatever. Or I go back and I go back with some more intellectual uh, humility, which is never a bad thing. But I thought those were just my two choices. And had someone been like, hey, there are more choices. There's different ways to understand what God's power could be like. There's different ways to understand how you can interpret these scriptures, um, different frameworks, different hermeneutics. I would have gladly <laughs> jumped into a third place, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have that way open to me. So I kind of went back in and was like, all right, well, I'm never going to understand this stuff perfectly, but I, I'm going to be intellectually humble in a sense and, and dig in here. And um, this supports my view of meaning of the world and we'll just go with this and I'll, I'll, I'll try to take it as it comes. So I don't know exactly how old you were at various albums or, you know, in career and then with your eventual involvement with Mars Hill and Reformed Theology. So are you talking about sort of the earlier Thrice sort of, period where you're yeah, doing C.S. Lewis, you know, titles of songs and stuff like that? <laughs> yeah, uh, this would have overlapped mostly with Artists in the Ambulance, I, I think. Okay. Um, Stare at the Sun is kind of representative of a lot of that. Uh, stuff, which has been an interesting song over time, just the way that it's, uh, I don't know, it's fun It's fun to have songs that, that shift in the way that you relate to them over time, and that one's always been, been an interesting one. Yeah, so the the line I'm thinking of at the end of the chorus is, I'll stare straight into the sun and I won't close my eyes. It's sort of an idea of like, it's basically a a call to courage 
in the face of uncertainty, right? You're wanting a miracle. You're wanting a sign. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so you can hear though, so how badly I'm wanting the certainty, right? <laughs> in it. Right. But yeah. I, looking back at it now, I'd say like, I, I think that that, that search is, is good and valuable and the questioning is going to be valuable. And I, I would put less emphasis on finding some kind of yeah. certain answer in, in, in regards to a lot of things, at least. That record came out when I was, I want to say 20. You know, I was a Christian philosophy major at a non-Christian state school in California. And it's really interesting how your sort of public search paralleled mine in a lot of ways at, at mm-hmm. similar points in life. Uh, except when you went reformed. I never bought that <laughs> shit, um, which we're, we're about to get to. Uh, let, let, let's let's go to that. So you've got this kind of, you're wanting this certainty and, and you're kind of like, I, I, I recognize the move. I have language for it now that I didn't have then. The move that I would say that it sounds to me like you made was it's the thoughtful Christian kid who encounters some doubt. This is the move that I made, by the way, as well. And is just kind of finding out that there's like, Oh, there's G.K. Chesterton and there's C.S. Lewis. And there are these sort of like intellectual giants of decades past that are resources for the thoughtful Christian. There's there are Francis Schaeffer's in the world. It's kind of like the Christian liberal arts school uh, approach, maybe you might say. It's not where I'm at now. It's not where Mm -hmm. you're at now. But it is it it has some real intellectual rigor to it. Right. Yeah. And so you go there rather than leaning into maybe a more experience based kind of a thing. Am I right? Yeah, I think I was there before even, but I had the idea that I could really I could nail it down. Right. And then that that was what I was like, oh, I'm never going to nail it down. Um, That freaked me out and kind of spun me out. Um, Yeah. So I, I definitely came back more nuanced even but the the main point was hey you're never going to make total sense of all this stuff and and that's really kind of the the seeds of my more recent deconstruction were planted there in the putting on the back burner of things that were never going to stay there <laughs> but yeah. uh you know things like genocide and god commanding genocide in the old testament eternal conscious torment stuff like that was just like I don't know. That doesn't seem to make sense, but I can't throw out goodness, truth, and beauty, and I don't have another option, so I'm going to put those on the back burner, and we'll figure this out later. Yeah, interesting. So I I wonder if that could partly explain our divergence at kind of similar points in the road. So I, as a philosophy major, could not ignore the genocide stuff and could not ignore the hell stuff because I was in these classes thinking about justice and 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 you know virtue and all that stuff and that stuff was just smacking me in the face and i think that's kind of what inoculated me against reformed theology was that i was like look i understand it's intellectually robust i understand it takes the text very seriously uh i would now say in a post-enlightenment kind of eurocentric individualist way it takes it seriously but it does and and there's a real intellectual sort of devotional kind of uh tradition there that's valuable uh, but i could never go there my question for you is did you make that turn toward a like kind of a serious reformed thinking while those questions were still on the back burner? Yes. And I think going reformed, there's some relief to those questions in a sense, because it really takes everything off your plate in a sense. Like it's really pushing it all on God. 
And so you're like, well, I don't, that seemed weird, but clearly I'm not understanding something, right? If it's just not making sense to me. And so you kind of can shove it off a bit. Um, There's a really big back door in reform theology, right? That you can push a lot of stuff back through of like, but my reason is not to the task. Yeah. So therefore I have reason to think I'd be wrong about this. Yeah, and that's it's it's also a club you can hit people with well, sure. uh, when they don't don't see things the same way as you. Um, what drew me to reform theology? I really hated it, partly because I misconstrued it. A lot of people view it as like you know you're a robot, and that's not generally the actual view. So I, I hated that, and then I, when I realized that wasn't the case, I kind of rethought through it. But the thing I liked about it was growing up evangelical. You get this idea that God's feelings towards you, his love for you is, is very wavery, like based on how good you're doing at the moment. And so it, it you never feel secure. You always feel like a sense of uh, shame when you are doing bad and pride when you are doing good. And Reformed Theology really cuts through that quite powerfully. And so what I latched onto was this idea that God's love was steady and unchanging, regardless of what I did. And you could find evangelicals who would articulate the same thing, but it's very, very clear in reform circles. So that was very beautiful. And I, so I would say, like, I still <laughs> hold to that. I just have moved beyond certain parts of the reform stuff. So I think God can be persistently and consistently loving without having to be really, I don't know. It, it, <laughs> what, well, what, I'm going to ask. I feel you, like I'm getting ahead of myself. So no, I'm going to ask you right. about that when we get to that point in the narrative. Okay. Okay. We got to talk about your joining Mars Hill. So I would like to give a little background for people who were not paying attention at the time. I don't think it is a exaggeration to say that Driscoll was one of the top five most effective reformed pastors in America at that moment. Oh no, no, no. And what people don't know who weren't here is that there was a huge community of like really good musicians that oh, yeah. were involved at Marcel. So that's kind of the context. Like uh, there's there's been no plagiarism scandal yet. There's been no scandal of using church funds to goose the New York Times bestseller list. It, it's still controversial in terms of how he talks he is, about women. He is publicly an asshole. So yeah, he's a public yes. asshole. The problem um, is yeah. he's a very powerful communicator. Oh, yeah. And when he's not being an asshole is communicating uh, that steady love of God in, in, a, in a very unique way. And so what happens, I think with people who ended up staying there for any amount of time is you, your Christian ideal of like forgiveness gets abused because you're like, well, yeah, that wasn't cool, but he needs grace too. Right. And once you do that, it becomes a fixture. You just, you keep doing that and you're like, damn it. Why did he say that this week? But then you're also on the ground with a lot of really amazing people and great things are happening in people's lives. And so you keep excusing it. And it's not a cynical bargain or something. You're not like, well, it's hard to describe it, but it's, it's, um, I don't know. Most of the best people I've ever known were working there at the time. And, I don't know. I came into a weird time when a bunch of people that I already knew that were there started leaving. And it was like, oh, why? why is there, I, mean, I mean, I had a buddy who had worked there forever. I was going to move up there. He's like, don't do it. 
He was still working there. Oh, like, really? Don't, don't come. And I was like, I feel like I'm supposed to. Well, and, and Nick Bogardis, who had managed Thrice for a decade at that point, was he on staff yet at Mars Hill? But like, he's a connection. He had left. And a guy you trusted. And you He know. had left managing us to go to go work there, yeah. I knew him really well. I knew Nate Burke really well, Jesse Bryant. Like, I, there was a bunch of people yeah. that I, I knew who were Nate Burke. Bassist of legendary tooth and nail band Frodus. Yeah. So I have a couple questions about the Mars Hill chapter from listeners. Here's the first one. And this is, we can bring it to the experience question. This guy writes, I'd love to hear if Dustin overrode any forms of knowledge in 2012 when making the decision to join the Mars Hill staff. Do you know, can you expand, expound? So I I guess what he's saying is like, um, you know, to, to put experience in, sort of the Wesleyan quadrilateral situation with scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. Uh, another way is just thinking of like experience is one of the ways we can know things. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. So right. perhaps did you override experiential knowledge? Did you override? I mean, you, you talked a little bit about the back burner of some of these moral questions about God's character within the reform view. Um, I think it's just kind of stuff like that. I don't think that I did. I just think, so the big takeaway for me looking back, even when I, before I deconstruct a lot of stuff was just like, Hey, like you were right to try to have grace for someone who's struggling with whatever, even just according to a pretty basic reading of Christian scripture. Like you didn't need to submit to that guy as an elder or authority. And that's what should have been. The thing was like, Oh, Hey, he's a good teacher. Also, there's enough going on there that I know about that I should be like, and he shouldn't be my pastor or, in any position of authority. So looking back, that's what I would have told myself at that time. And people probably tried to, I feel like nobody articulated that nuance and that might've helped me, but it makes me think of kind of an interesting question of church culture in the West, which is, it seems like when you think about it, being a really good teacher and being a really good spiritual authority figure for an organization should not have that much overlap, but yeah. but it's but they're wedded for some reason in our imagination. I think especially as Protestants who really value preaching because preaching explicates the Bible, and we value the Bible over all the other liturgical elements and over the church teaching and all of that stuff. I mean, that's probably part of it. There's also a part that I think is kind of celebrity driven. I think Trump is related to all of that, and you know, mega pastors are related to all of that. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I, I think some of it ties into narcissistic tendencies and the way i mean if you study at all like the the way that narcissism actually functions it creates a structure around itself to protect itself um right and it just naturally does like the person doesn't even have to be aware of that yeah it's it's naturally it's actually we think of narcissists as really confident people but narcissism is a defense structure against being insecure i think so yeah one other question about the mars hill season when did you see warning signs at Mars Hill? You, you said you saw maybe a, you had a couple. You had at least one friend before you were there. And what were those warning signs? Like what led to the end kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it just kept building. And here the, the frustrating part was, and I was a pastor at the end, and everything started spinning out. Like there was more and more controversies coming out uh, in news stuff, whatever, and and this is kind of what was happening even when I was first coming in, like the polemic against the church or against Mark made people defensive in a certain sense. And I, I mean, I'm sure you see this a bunch, especially with the depolarized stuff, but 
when there's such an attack, sometimes it causes people to to uh, double down and circle the wagons. Yeah, yeah. And so you would hear something, and then you would get a story of like, oh no, they that's actually not true, and then that starts to inoculate you against the input that's coming in from the outside. And so people on the outside who are saying this or that are demonized because you have heard a different story to this. And so it became more and more concerning to where a lot of the pastors were trying to push to get things changed inside church, trying to have accountability. And the thing that finally really broke it was that I got confirmation that they were lying to us, which we didn't have before. And so that was really hard because we're like... Okay, well, that sounds like a reasonable explanation from the inside. Uh, okay, I, I guess I'll keep trusting this. Uh, and so we had been you know, receiving these lies, giving them out to the people, being like, "Oh no, I, I know you heard this, but whatever." And so that that was the most frustrating part was being made, uh, you know, a part of that. And so once we had confirmation that that they were actually lying to us, that really broke things open. And that's when me and the other some of the other pastors wrote a letter trying to get all the other pastors to step up and stop all of this put Mark on leave, figure out what was happening. That all got squashed, shut down. I ended up leaving, writing a letter, explaining to people just because they the letter had leaked that I had originally wrote with the other guys. And I didn't want people to feel like abandoned, like, hey, you just blew this thing up and now you're running away. It's like, I, well, yeah, I, you, I mean, at this point, you're a pastor. You have hundreds, thousands of people, you know, like under your at least partial spiritual care. I mean, you have to think about those people, not just the internet public, right? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and that was never really the concern. It was more just, like, I'm going to do whatever I can to try to fix this while I can. And then it became clear that nobody was, at the top at least, was interested in, in doing anything about it. And me sticking around was just going to be a, playing a scenario out where I eventually get fired and drag my family through more nonsense. So Right, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about leaving then. You You, you write the letter with the other pastors, you co-write it. Nothing happens. It leaks. So you leave and you write uh, an open letter. I remember reading at the time about why you were leaving. And I guess my question about that was, I mean, does that relate to the experience thing? No, I mean, I think it does relate in. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you're getting at the gaslighting of like everyone being like, is this all crazy? Is the building on fire? And yeah. people being like, no, it's not on fire. Yeah. I think that's that's part of that idea. Um is sometimes when you're like, something's wrong, it's okay to take that feeling seriously and to try to get answers for it. And if I would say giant warning sign is if someone's not letting you ask those things, uh, that you should probably just bail. It's not a, not a healthy situation where you can't, can't ask those, those questions. So I have, but this that's, that's, question. that's really hard because at this point people are so, intertwined and invested in the community right and so when you you have you have leverage to gaslight people at that point i think it is really hard to not think about donald trump when i'm talking about mark driscoll yeah just at a psychological sort of phenomena level yeah Mar uh, mark's i'd say he's a lot more nuanced and i'd say he's a lot smarter oh yeah. and, uh, well at least more educated but the similarities are are pretty intense so I have this listener question, you know, having gone through what you went through, do you have any strategies for dealing with leaders who are gaslighting, who are sort of, they have enough leverage, enough power, enough communication skill, whatever, to sort of make you think that the 
problems are not real. They must be all in your head because everything is actually fine. Part of taking your experience seriously, I would say, is taking other people's experience seriously. Yeah. Because when you can be made to doubt your own experience, then you definitely doubt other people's experience. Uh, when you can trust your experience in some sense, you learn to trust other people's experience. Oh, and, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's really the basis of a, a healthy community or society where you can be like, oh, and, and this is, I, I think the way you see that play out in evangelicalism and other places is when you're made to distrust your experience, you absolutely will distrust the experience of others. And so you write them off. So if you have someone who is saying, hey, I, I'm gay, I've always felt this way and whatever, but people around you are like, well, no, they're just whatever, whatever you, what you want to put There's it. There's 10 like, different, uh, yeah, yeah, throwaway lines there, yeah. None of which are actually taking that person's experience seriously. Like, what is yeah, it like There are to ways be, to deflect taking it seriously. Yeah, yeah, what is it like to be in that person's shoes and feel the way that they're feeling? And if you're going to get down to what I would say the root of good ethics are and what Jesus talks about doing to others as you have done to you, he says that this, summer, this summarizes the law and the prophets. Yeah, we don't take that very seriously, like, that should be the core of how you approach any ethical situation. And it's just not the way that the church generally does it. So you, you kind of even hit this, but there, the next question from another listener was, how did your personal experiences of Driscoll's abusive and manipulative behaviors like collide with the collective experiences, you know, of the, of the various people that, you know, there's sort of collective experience that's reinforcing the norms, but then you're also talking about there's collective experience that is, wait, is this wrong? That are on the on the fringes of people's consciousness and increasingly less and less the fringes, right, as time goes on and uh, the evidence piles up. I'm just kind of wondering if there's anything else there about your personal experience and the group experience. And then after that, I, I, I love this idea that maybe you have to take your own experience seriously before you can take another's. And if you can't take another's seriously, you can't actually love your neighbor as yourself. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think that's very true. As far as the group dynamic versus the personal there, I think what starts happening or was happening there is you are kind of huddled with those around you who are you're experiencing this stuff with almost against the one who is at the top of this and causing these problems. But it's, I don't know, it's a complicated and really unhealthy situation. But you, I mean, ever you would bond in a way out of like the like oh god yeah mark and yeah and but you're like but down here we're this is something good we're doing so we're dealing with that and you know hoping for the best praying for him to change i don't know what trying to work through the system but the system was getting essentially and that's why it all broke down was it, it got more and more funneled until people were like nope this is totally out of control like i think what everyone thought for a long time was we can stop this if it gets bad enough. And then it got bad enough and people were like, oh, they've removed all the mechanisms for us yeah. to stop this. Right. Um, and we didn't, which is a good life lesson. Say like something like NSA, wire, illegal wiretapping or something where you're like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. So why do I care? Right. And it's like, no, but you can't, you can't just give all that away because at some point it might really matter to everyone. Right. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I'm just really intrigued by this idea that there's different ways of thinking, apparently, about love your neighbor as yourself, like a super stubborn, 
<laughs> reformed person might say, well, look, that person might think that what they want is for me to take their experience seriously. But actually, the best way to love people is just to like get them to accept Christ or rather accept the sovereignty of God because they can't actually accept Christ on a reformed form view. God accepts Christ for them. And so that's a, a kind of a twisting, I think, of the, you know. That does, that literally gets said a fair amount, I think. Yeah. But, but here's, a, here's another way of thinking about it. Like, is loving your neighbor as yourself, is there necessarily, as part of that, a question to them of what is your life like? It makes me think of missionary work of like, let's just go in and solve things. Or like, do we need to have a discovery period? Yeah. Where we listen to the community, you know? There's a, I forget who said it. It's probably a bunch of people, but I think maybe a better way to say the golden rule even is to say, I mean, do unto others as they would have you do unto them. Mm. Yeah. Because, it, it, I mean, it's just adding that layer of, hey, don't just assume everyone is wanting or thinking the same thing about you. A good example of this is uh, if you're going through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A and you're an introvert and they want to ask you all about your weekend plans. And they've been told that this is a way to be loving and helpful to people. Oh gosh. Yeah. It's only loving and helpful to some people. Uh, the, uh, and- the dental, the dental hygienist. <laughs> That's my example of like lady or sir, I just want to get out of here. Can yeah. you just do this as quickly as possible? It hurts and I hate it. And like, I'm not going to remember this conversation. You don't, you're not going to remember what I did with my summer. I'm not going to remember what you did with your summer. Yeah. But, but then I also think that but they want to talk. Just, that's just, yeah, but that's reading people. Like, and if that person is, is an I extrovert, know. they <sighs> are actually not being loving by not reading your introversion. No, and they're vice, not. And vice versa. Well, like, I'm no introvert. I just hate getting my teeth cleaned. But. I um I was thinking about this in the chair. I was having that old airplane guilt, you know, like, oh, should I be should I bring this person to Christ who happens to be sitting next to me on the airplane? But I had it about like I'm not loving her. She obviously wants to talk, but I'm getting you know, picks in my mouth and my gums are bleeding. God, do I really need to be kind <laughs> to this woman? Uh anyway, it's a it's a silly example. Oh, it's not. It's I mean that's it's the mundane everyday thing that no, I, and I think if both people are are doing that, there's there's some kind of good thing that comes out of that. Yeah, yeah that, there's 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 something really big there to mine, maybe in the future, and I just kind of want to flag it as a verbal processor for myself here. That like, love your neighbor, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is actually a, a little bit that framing nowadays in our language today is a little egotistical. It assumes that I know what's best for everyone else by proxy of what I think is best for me, right? Which is, oh, maybe I don't. And so I like that as they would have you do unto them, then you have to it do requires, a little discovery. Yeah. You yes, have to it ask requires questions. you to do some work, yeah. And, that's, and that is like obviously more Christ-like. It's not like that's a big jump or anything like that. Well, how, well uh, if you want to look at an example a little bit, when, when Christ is uh, going to heal the guy at the pool of Bethesda and he's like, do you want to be healed? And I mean, that's profound for a bunch of different reasons, Um, because I think it's very possible to interpret that in a way of like, the guy probably didn't want to be healed until that moment. Like, he probably hadn't crawled into that pool because he was comfortable in that spot. He He got some, you know, poor man's version of value for being the eternal cripple. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's just an interesting example of someone being like, well, yeah, 
of course I'm going to heal heal that guy if I can heal that guy. But hmm. there's there's this discovery moment. Like, Do you really want that? Yeah, that's interesting. So let's get to post Mars Hill. My experience of you is that I wasn't really paying attention, and then Damn a few it. years Damn. later, you emerge as <laughs> oh he's like a process theologian now. He's not. I, I think I trip from homebrewed Christianity might have mentioned something or and I was like, oh, I wasn't, you know, you weren't on my radar theologically. I was still listening to Thrice Records, but and so apparently I wasn't listening very closely. No, it was a, it was a process. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about that. So maybe just walk us briefly through that change, and and I imagine experience is going to play a role in that. So this week's patron-only episode is with the same person you're listening to me talk to right now, Dustin Kensru. Um, we get into more stuff about the band, about Thrice, about touring, what it shows us about ourselves, about being a kind of public spokesperson for Christians and how that feels, um, the difficulties of writing lyrics for heavy music, and the connection between punk rock and the kind of anti-empire messaging of Jesus and a few more things. So if you want to hear that, you should be a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron it starts at five bucks a month. Um, and there's also a Facebook group that is only for patrons that has become increasingly an awesome part of my life. And I think a, a lot of patrons lives to have that community. So again, patreon.com slash Dan Coke back to the chat with Dustin. little context so i left marcel and moved back down to california because my wife likes the sun and all our families here we were back down here we found a church it's a rough kind of recovery after the whole marcel thing when we had sold our house down here by the time we had bought up there it was like the market had changed we came back down and couldn't afford a house anymore so just big stuff like that where you're like i had a house <laughs> I don't, I don't have a house anymore. Um, yeah. And then just relationally trying to figure out all the damage that it all had done to us, uh, me and my wife and our family. So we were there, we had some kind of healing. Uh, we're doing pretty good. And I was leading worship there again, which I was, I had taken time off and started slowly back into, uh, was actually kind of there like quarter time, like working there. Stuff I was like, I'm never doing that again. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is seems like a safe place. And What kind of church was this, by the way? Same kind of thing. Non-denom, evangelical. Okay, so you didn't actually go to like a Presbyterian or some other kind of Reformed. But a lot of non-denominational churches... Yeah. It is an Acts 29 church. So oh, it's Acts 29. Yeah. Okay, got it. So people don't know that it's, Mars Hill was an Acts 29 church. And one of the first actually big warning signs of the whole downfall was Mars Hill getting removed from Acts 29, wasn't it? Or did that that was later? near the end, and that was it was the end. a okay. big part of everything kind of falling apart. Yeah. Um, okay, it was near the end, right? So we were there. Sorry, I'm going too long on this. Basically, no, it's good. a I lot don't of people, know a lot of this. So well, a lot of I'm people interested. like online will be like, oh, you're just, you deconstructed because Mars Hill like ruined you or something. Uh, it's not the case. So I was still in a fairly similar like theological mindset. I was on the road with thrice writing what would have been like another worship record um just in my time that i wasn't playing on the road 
and in the process of doing that, I'd always do a lot of research when I'm writing anything. And so came back to the kind of inerrancy thing, which had always been an issue for me. And was like, oh, maybe now's the time to like check this out again. I, I think I'd seen there was a book, like Five Evangelical Views of Inerrancy or something like that. Yeah, like a Zondervan book. Yeah. Is that the one that Pete Enns is in? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I read that or I read part of it anyway. So I, I grabbed that and ended up being like, oh, Pete Enns is the only one who I think is actually like, uh, I can agree with what they're saying. I mean, everyone in there is you know, smart people, but and there's some great nuanced points if you want to remain in the inerrant camp that are made. Not by Al Mohler. Yeah, not by Albert Mohler. No. Uh, but the other guys are like, hey, chill out, Al, and make some good points. But then <laughs> Pete is basically like, hey, I don't think we can still be inerrant and actually deal with these problems. And, you know, those one of those problems is like historicity of Joshua. Yeah. And another one is God commanding genocide. And everyone King's, else does. King's Chronicles. Yeah. yeah. So everyone else does the dance yep. that you learn to do if you're there long enough and have your brain on is there's a bunch of ways you can kind of get it and when you just you did a great episode on that yeah there's all these ways you can do the jujitsu and kind of try to keep it going but it was so refreshing to hear someone just be like no it's it doesn't work and i was like yes it doesn't work and yeah uh so that got me into i read a couple ends books i read i don't know some different things and was really presented with this idea of Hey, this is the way you've been taught to look at these documents is not helpful. It's not the way that they were looked at. It's not the way they were meant to be looked at. It was like it's not the way that, especially with the Old Testament, it's not the way that traditionally Jews have looked at this stuff. Like especially that idea of it being a conversation over time within a community, I thought was really helpful, corrective to to looking at it as this magical thing. And that had always bothered me. You know, I, I understood how the canon was formed, how we got these books together and whatever, but it always seemed weird to me. That was like, okay, we decided on the canon and then it magically jumped up and became something completely different. Like all these books are good and now they're magical altogether. So ends was so helpful to me because he starts the Bible tells me so with the Canaanite genocide and that was my deconstructive thread. Yeah. Like that was the one that kind of started it all for me. And so I found him so especially helpful Old Testament scholar, really focused on that issue. Was that kind of in this phase of deconstruction a similar string or was it more just the general idea of inerrancy? Uh, no, that was that was huge. I mean – because um, you had said I earlier, think, it had been on the back burner, right? And so now you're yeah, on the back burner the in the time. sense of like there's too much cognitive dissonance to really function right now yeah. with this, and so yeah. I don't know what to do. So I'm going to push it back here for a bit. So then, after Mars Hill, get a little healing, get in a safe spot, you are able to kind of take it up again. <laughs> yeah, totally. So that's the that's the ironic part of people who are like, oh, it's just you're just doing this out of like some trauma response is like no this came out of like healing this came out of the freedom to actually think about this stuff without psychological barriers in place which are subconscious generally and so i mean that's why it's hard to talk to people who are pastors about certain stuff like this right now because they they can't really entertain it uh depending on where they're at it kind of depends on the status of their job yeah. And and you understand that, you know, what what beliefs are required for you to maintain employment? 
Yeah. And again, that's, I don't think generally a cynical conscious determination. It's just the way that your mind survives. Right. Or for, I mean, look, we can, you can apply that in a lot of ways. So currently I make a living writing advertising music. One thing I really can't think about too much right now is if I think all advertising is immoral. (laughs) That is certainly a possible claim that could be true, but I can't entertain it because my house is being paid for by that. I'm paying for grad school. I want to have a family. Like now maybe 10 years from now when I'm a therapist not writing any ad music anymore, I'll be able to go, you know what? Advertising is immoral. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just – that's the real world. So we have these material needs and we we cannot have everything on the table all the time. It just is impossible. And that's not a judgmental thing, I don't think. No, it's not. was there more deconstruction or are you about to, to elbow into reconstruction? Once inerrancy was, I was like, oh, yeah, that's totally not right and has been screwing up my thinking on this for a while. That's a heady experience when you've been in that place for a while. And I feel like there was a, there was definitely like a day when I was like, I just don't know anything. And I think in the past that would have been really scary. And I was like, that's OK. I'm OK. I'm here. Yeah. What happened in that moment was I saw a reversal in something I'd always thought. So I thought the Bible was propping up goodness, beauty, and truth. And I needed those. And so I needed a way to prop them up. And then when the Bible fell away in the sense that I had been used to it, what I saw very clearly or experienced was those three pillars were unmoved. And that was trippy. And I was like, whoa, look at those. Look at those guys. They're fine. And then I realized, okay, something about my experience is saying that those those things are deeper than at least my understanding of what this thing was. The the pillars were propping up the Bible rather yes. than the other way around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had I have a question here about I think that trusting or taking seriously our experience, there is both a deconstructive and a reconstructive element to that. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that those can be separated, let's hold off on the reconstruction. So just looking at that deconstruction, Mm -hmm. what role did experience play in that? I mean, it played a huge role in the sense that it got to the point where I was like, I am no longer going to trust that my experience of what it means to be good includes any possibility that that could command genocide or that what it, whatever it was. It, so in that sense, you, maybe a better term for it is your moral intuitions, like your deep moral intuitions. Yes. But those are inextricable from experience, I would say. Oh, yeah. I mean, where do they come from, right? Those aren't in the Bible. Yeah. It's not like I once read <laughs> that good gods would never commit, command genocide. No, it's like a that comes out through living a human life. You go, oh, I have this well, intuition. Yeah, but I, it's more, I think it's more complicated than that because I do believe in cultural and moral revol- or evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so some of the things I think we'd be like, oh, well, obviously this. We only think obviously this because that evolution has happened and you have people right. who are pushing that forward. So when someone like Jesus says, Hey, you, who of you would, would give your kid a, a serpent when they ask for a fish or who would give them a rock when they ask for bread? I think that's part of this moral evolution where Jesus is, is pointing out something that had not been 
as a parent to the larger culture at the time. And so if you take that seriously, which I started to do, I realized that the times when I'm the best father I can be are not ever the times where there's any retributive movement happening. It is when I incur the wrong from, you know, my kid or something. And I, I bear that and I don't have to take that out on anyone. And so if I, who get hangry and don't sleep enough and whatever, if I can do that, clearly God is able to, to take that without having to pour out wrath. And, and so that was kind of the deconstruction of at least certain atonement theories for me was coming out of experience, uh, experience and connecting some of those pieces with the way pointed out in, in a moral evolution. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's get into the second half of this theological change story, the, the ramp back up to sort of a, a more process view that you have today. Yeah. Which is, I'd still say is very loose. I just, sure. Uh, mine, mine too. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I deconstructed and it was just kind of just there. And I don't, most people probably wouldn't do this as badly as me, but uh, I did it very badly where I was processing this all in the road and I can take a lot of information and process it internally and come to a decision and someone outside, it would seem like I'm just making a snap judgment, hmm. uh, which is the furthest thing from the truth. I've just been processing this stuff for a while and it finally hits a tipping point and I'm ready to go. Then I'm like, oh yeah, I've changed my mind. And that's terrifying for certain kinds of people, uh, especially if you're married to someone and all of a sudden it seems like they've just changed their mind for no reason. Uh, yeah. so yeah, I like, I think I texted my wife. I was like, Hey, I'm not sure what I think about inerrancy anymore. And uh, don't do that. So, um, <laughs> that's a bad idea. I don't think my wife ever re- actually believed in inerrancy. Like if you really press her on it, I well, don't, here's, I think she never did. Well, here's what's fun. We were, well, we listened to, what, you just had an episode that was really good and helpful for us in basically her saying that she hadn't either in a sense, but had kind of. Like her natural intuitions experience led her to not think that. And we've gone on this whole experience where, uh, so for her, like in high school was really, really bothered by eternal conscious torment, that kind of stuff. I was like, this is wrong. And I would now say, yeah, your moral intuitions were correct. And then they got overrode by a bunch of other things. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to get back at is like something in us leaps up and is, is really bothered by this until it gets conditioned. As an example, I've been reading the new David Bentley Hart book, That All Shall Be Saved, his, mm-hmm. his uh, universalism treatment. And one of the things he highlights is the sort of more sophisticated arguments uh, by what he, <laughs> he calls the infernalists, which is like the best word for people who believe in uh, yeah. hell. And it's this idea that like you basically have to find some way of saying that human beings make a rational choice or they would have, and God knew they would have something like that to do something entirely irrational, which is to live in hell forever. Mm -hmm. That somehow it is both rational and irrational. They do both. It's this weird move. And it's not like it makes sense. I don't think that that's what it is. I don't think people believe that because it makes sense. I think they believe it because it is a natural consequence of a bunch of other stuff that makes sense and that they have found really helpful and orienting for their life. And this is just, you got to bite the bullet and take this hell stuff because it's part of it. I think that's really more, but when you look at it by itself, 
it's it's hardly even coherent. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's it's not the reason people are drawn to anything. It just becomes part of a package. And if you want, you know, Jesus, you got to take this stuff too. Right. Um, so sorry, I what do you, what do you recon- that's all right. What do you, uh, what are you reconstructing toward these days? Like, give us, uh, give us some bullet points here. Uh, you were, uh, you were oh, so listening to my, with your wife. Yeah, and, yeah. All right. So yeah, I totally freaked her out and had, and she's like, just stop reading for a second. Just chill. Come home. Like, that's let's, awesome. Let's try to like figure this out. So I was like, okay. So I just kind of paused and was just there for a bit. I'm kind of wistful for like a wife that cares about this stuff. Like I feel like my experience with my wife is like, Oh, you're considering a Christ- robust Christian pluralism. That That's really sweet, honey. Like she doesn't really care about it. Right. And like, even though it can be conflict, there's a part of me that's like, Oh, that would be really nice. If, if it really mattered to her, like where I fell on this theological question. So, Hey, there's some blessing in all of that, Dustin. <laughs> To okay. do it together. Yeah, and we just process stuff super differently. And so, but it's definitely on like parallel paths now. Uh, maybe not in the same spot uh, exactly, but but uh, moving together down some sort of path, which is great. Yeah, ours are parallel too. I, I describe it as, and you've probably heard me say this, just like I need about 25 times the granularity that she needs. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's probably so that's true the main as well difference. for us. Yeah. Okay, so I was reading this book called Deep Religious Pluralism, uh, edited by David Ray Griffin, and uh, started reading it and was like, what What are they talking about? He was talking about um, naturalism, but what? I forget the exact term he used, and I was like, I don't know what they're meaning by this term, uh, and what I eventually figured out what they were trying to, what their meaning was, they were talking about a kind of a process framed universe or more uh, panentheistic universe where God can act without breaking into the world. Without breaking the laws of physics. Yeah, yeah, because God is always involved uh, intimately. Uh, And so it took me a while to figure out, I was like, what are they talking about? Um, I had no context. It was basically a book of a bunch of process people talking about how they could deeply engage uh, in their differences, but learn from each other and also have their own faith traditions. So I, that Which was Which is like th- exactly the, the needle I'm trying to thread right now in my own thought is like, how do I, it's the, it's the plate thing. It's the, the plate versus the whole living room. I need some kind of pluralism because I have to take other people's religious experience seriously. But I also need my own lens for understanding the world. I don't want to pretend they're all the same thing. They're not all the same thing, but I need to live somewhere specifically kind of a thing. So I, I resonate with that a lot. Yeah. And I think some of that's going to be, you're just going to have ways that make sense to you as better ways to frame things. Even if you're getting at something really similar than someone who grew up in something totally different because you grew up with it. And I was like, what is this process theology? What is this stuff? And at a party and Andy, actually Andy Lara, uh, who's producer of, my podcast and he was like hey you should check out because no one i knew knew anything about process stuff it's just <laughs> and he's like oh trip fuller talks about that on his podcast whatever yeah uh, trip christianity podcast process center it, what finding trips podcast did was opened my eyes to there's an entire world of people who uh would call themselves christians who are beautiful smart human beings who 
have a bunch of interesting ideas and don't agree with each other and all somehow seem to have real community and that world did not exist to me before that like anyone outside of the like your way of viewing the christian world i mean you kind of had different camps and you'd be like well you're in this camp or that camp and then uh i guess all that stuff would have fallen into whatever was called the liberal camp or the main line or whatever and you're like right. oh those people they just they don't yeah. even believe and whatever i don't know it, it just, so that's usually so it, for you a proof in the pudding was like the way that these these liberal theologians really differed on some stuff but but like internally got along and and lived in real community is that what you're saying yeah i think so i it, it was really refreshing to to see that you see it on end's show too i think well where it's i mean people outside of christianity as well but just who are able to to share some deeper experience and and disagree and talk about stuff in a way that's Hopeful and loving. Yeah, it was amazing to see that. And so that was cool. But I also was learning more about process theology, process philosophy. But the philosophy part was really mind-blowing to me, this completely different way of looking at um, the interconnectedness of things as opposed to like a dualistic view of the world, which I'd always just thought clearly was the way it had been taught to me. God's outside of all this. All this is separate. So Whitehead is the guy who kind of started process philosophy. And what he was trying to do was say, hey, we need a new metaphysic to try to make sense of all the things we're learning in physics because none of them are making sense together. So let's zoom back out and try to picture what is the world, what is reality actually like now instead of taking an old kind of Cartesian model and trying to cram quantum stuff into it or whatever. People don't like that I would call myself Christian and... I don't know. Like I just had, I had a meeting with some people the other day at the church that I was part of a little while ago and had to confront them on some stuff and be like, yo, you did me wrong and it sucks. And, uh, here's what it is. And, and they were talking to me about, you know, it would be easier if I was just not a, a Christian with the things that I don't believe that they believe or whatever. So I don't believe in eternal conscious torment. I don't believe in penal substitutionary atonement. And I was like, look, if it's easier for you to love me and think of me as a non-Christian, go for it. But <laughs> the, reason, yeah. the reason I'm sitting here in front of you, the reason that I'm forgiving you is because I'm a Christian. Uh, right. These things matter deeply to me. My experience of grace, this makes the most sense of it in some way. Like I, I have, the, I mean, to me at least, I'm not saying it's the only way to get there, but I, I think that's a much bigger plate than is allowed for most of the time. I don't know. This has been a big thing on, I feel like on Twitter lately, like, are you a Christian if you don't look at, you know, the cross this way or re resurrection this way or whatever. And I don't know. I think, are we oriented around uh, the teachings of Jesus in some sense is to me, what, what makes someone a Christian? Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that we need a smaller box. Yep. My definition is Jesus. Can you say Jesus is Lord in some meaningful sense? And I was just thinking about that right now. One of those meaningful senses might be Jesus is Lord of my life and my actions and the way that I conduct my family and my business and my choices. That's Lord. That's a kind of Lord. Yeah. I Even feel like it, the Lord language is, it's, it's so archaic. It's hard for us. It is to, archaic. I got that from Bede Griffiths in a book he wrote in like 1960. So it is older language. Um, I mean, when they're saying there's Lord, a better it's, way, it, of, it's yeah. like master, teacher, what, I mean, it's, there's a level of, of... He was a monk, so he probably meant it more like teacher, you know, like chief monk. 
Yeah. Im- imitation of Christ kind of a sense. In the same way yeah. you're a Franciscan, you know, Francis is a big deal. He kind of sets the tone of what right. we're doing. Right. And it would be weird to be a Franciscan and be like, man, I don't like Francis that much. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's not like you're going to are... agree with everything that someone did hundreds of years ago, but there's kind of a tone and that's why you're in that camp. And right. So it'd be weird if I was like, yeah, I'm Christian. I don't, I don't like Jesus. Yeah. That would be weird. There is a big, there's people functionally so I... who are like that though. Like, Oh, of course. Well, I mean, I'm just there's... saying a lot of Christians are Christians, but I would say don't actually like. Well, the simplest way to Jesus. be a Christian and sideline Jesus is to make everything about Jesus's death and resurrection and nothing about his life and teachings. Yeah, which is the problem with over-focusing on creeds because they ignore all of that or over-focusing on the yep. epistles because they ignore all of that. Um, yep, true. So there's worries both on the high church side and on the low church side. But the nice thing about the high church side is most of those denominations and streams prioritize the gospels in the worship setting. So the gospel is read in the middle of the room. You stand for it as opposed to the other readings, Mm. which uh, offsets the fact that the creed doesn't have anything really from the gospels or uh, none of Jesus' teachings are in the creed. Yeah. Creeds. I think the thing to remember about the creeds is they're, they were trying to account for saying we don't think something as opposed to what we do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, well, we don't think that. So we have to say this specifically. And so, yeah, a lot of stuff that's really important doesn't make it in there because it wasn't something people were disagreeing about. Yeah. I want to just talk a bit about experience in the abstract here. Here is a, a kind of a big worry that I have slash a devil's advocate thing to consider. I'm not sure to what extent it, I believe it or it's devil's advocate, but it is a, it's an issue and it's the sheer variety of human experience. I mean, it's, it's the size of the living room versus the plate. This is, both pushing you and I outside the bounds of what we used to have. And it is sort of self-authenticating that there's all this experience, but then it's so various. And and the variety of human experience is not just geographical. It's not just personality and, and people's life stories. It's also chronological, which you've been talking about a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and process thought tries to incorporate that. But as you said earlier, like the possibilities that each of us have intuitionally are constrained by when and where we are born. And so I have a very strong intuition that black and white people should be able to be married. And I frankly would probably not have that intuition if I was born 150 years earlier. Just very, very statistically unlikely to have that intuition. Yeah. So is this where we want to walk it back and say experience is one of many or, you know, how do you want to respond to that? So I think, Using the word possibility is, is helpful, like you said. And that's a very processy way to think of things is you don't have total freedom, right? You don't have just carte blanche, like infinite freedom. You have possibilities. And depending what kind of process philosopher you are, you, there's multiple things that go into that. So the past has a very big impact on the future or in the present. But it doesn't have all the the, the say. And that that's a huge thing in process thought is that the past has a huge impact on essentially the possibilities available to you in the moment. The past includes things like the way that my brain neural networks have formed, right? Yeah, like absolutely. All, the past includes my choices, other people's choices, my parents' choices in raising me or in beating me or in loving me or, you know, whatever. It's all that stuff. It greatly constrains the possibilities of the present moment. Yes. I would say what's amazing about the present moment 
is we have more possibilities open to us than ever before because we have access to more experience from uh, our, the way we can apprehend different points of the past because we have all this information of what people have thought and done before mm. us. We are more connected to people in different cultures living currently. And so I think by taking experience seriously, our own and others, if you do that, I think naturally what happens is you start to have a picture of the world where everything is much more nuanced than a lot of us grew up thinking was good or possible. And it should, I think, bring you to a place of of an intellectual humility in a lot of ways yeah. to where yeah. that's going to be a, a, a primary way that you look at the world is saying, I'm just not totally sure about a lot of the stuff that I was happy to be, be sure about before. And Maybe experience acts as both it's an expander and then it's also a contractor of your own certainty about it. Like in, in the same move. I think it definitely, yes, it, it expands those possibilities and it erodes your, your certainty, which sounds terrifying to most people. Probably I would but say I, being here. Uh, I mean, it's, I think it's probably a scary road to get comfortable with uncertainty, but once you're there, I, I, I don't know. The water's, the water's fine. I, I feel like it's, it's still a little scary, but it's like my experience of the world is so much richer now. Mm, yeah. And I'm like, Oh, I'm already 36. I better get 50 more years of this so I can kind of make up for lost time Isn't that of great, just like, though? you know, but it's that's, crazy. All right. That's such a profound thought in the sense that, and that's really showing something about the, the benefit of getting to that place that you feel that way. And I totally, I, I totally understand what you're meaning by that. This is really a new language, really maybe from like this morning, thinking about some stuff that like, you know, I studied philosophy in college and there was always an option for me of, well, I know I was raised a Christian, but why don't I just become a philosopher? Like, why don't I just say, these are the people who actually know how logic works. They're the people who are kind of taking the world as it comes to them and as it is and, and trying to think through it with as few biases as possible. You know, and that's, of course, this is the platonic perfect vision of philosophy, yeah. which it isn't always, but there was a part of me that always wanted to be like, no, but I've got a shortcut to that, which mm. is I've got Christianity. Oh yeah. So I don't actually have to do that work. And I think what I'm coming to realize is like, no, there is not a shortcut to that because what I thought was the shortcut is a little too arbitrarily chosen for me by where and when I was born and who I was born to. And even what the chemical makeup of my brain happens to be. And if I'm going to be a more melancholic person or a more anxious person, or there's just too many things I have no control over that I can't control for to find out what's really going on. And I'm not going to just become a philosopher as a result of all that, because that's not, I don't like it enough, but I do have to sort of accept that like, no, the rules for logical engagement, that's real. You know, it, even if I like someone, if they're doing a straw man argument, it's a bad argument. It, it just is. And there's yeah. no way around it just because, well, I know the right people who are making straw man arguments because they accord with my understanding of this text or this religious community or something. And there is a sadness in that, but it was also kind of a laziness that is probably better to just be gotten rid of. 
if that makes sense. No, it makes sense. I was just thinking right now, it's kind of funny that this process I'm describing of being a philosophy student at a regular school as a Christian, one of the, one of the many people that I thought I had this special affinity and access to that showed me that I didn't need to do all the philosophical work was you <laughs> and your songwriting because <laughs> you were on the team, you know? Um, uh. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not, it's not your fault or anything, but like I utilized all those resources of like, well, these are all the people on my team and I'll just cobble together all of this instead of having to actually argue for my faith from the beginning. Yeah. You know, that's with, just with a no very, priors. that's a very human thing to do. Though. Of course it is. <laughs> so I, I'd like to hear from your perspective, like what are the main counter arguments to trusting our experience or taking our experience seriously that you're familiar with? I mean, everyone knows someone like this where their experience of the world is just absolutely the only thing that matters to them. Like they're not taking other people's experience of the world. They're not taking logic into play. They're not taking I things think that have been learned you... in history and time. Yeah. And when you know. say that, you know what I think of the, the like silly version, but that totally works is like the, the college or high school student going, no more drama. I'm not letting anyone in my life that is dramatic. That's like the perfect example of someone thinking that they are going to be able to change things by asserting there's not going to be drama anymore. Like, good luck with that, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I definitely heard this a lot, and I've sure told this to plenty of people in my time, but somewhere in Proverbs, uh, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things, whatever, like that. That verse is used as this club oh, to yeah. just, oh, you think you feel something? You think you experience something? You think there's something valid to the the way that you intuit the world? It's like, nope, because your heart is black and it can't do anything good. Well, and especially that, that verse is really emphasized in reform circles in oh, a yeah. way that it is, isn't elsewhere. That's right? true. Um, but I, I think I felt that I heard that one growing up. Oh, me too. And, and my mom would use it sometimes like in, in, you know, when, when it was appropriate to her argument. Well, it's the, it's the, it's what gets brought up if someone says, yeah, I'm following my heart. The heart <laughs> like, is deceitful above all things. Yeah. 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 Right. Cool. But then there's also, there's all this stuff of like, you know, the God of your youth, which is like very desirous and like experiential kind of language, right. Mm-hmm. Of like, you're supposed to trust in some sense that initial fire of longing for God and God's love that you feel either as a convert or as a young person raised in this tradition. And so there's a obviously a tension in the text between trusting experience, but not too much. Dan, but, how dare you assert tension in the text? <laughs> well, and that's where all the Jonathan Haidt stuff and, and Daniel Kahneman stuff is so, is so incredibly helpful. You know, we, we quote the verses that fit the argument we're trying to make in the moment. Yeah. You know, and but we, but we, we play a game with ourselves where we pretend that we're not doing that and we're representing right. the whole. Yep. Yeah. That's one of the genies I can't put back in the bottle. So one more question about the counter arguments. Do you think that because you spent so much time in reformed circles where the arguments against experience are sort of strongest, that that had some kind of um, bouncing effect for you that maybe if you had been in a Wesleyan you know, or a you know a holy of this tradition, or a Anabaptist tradition, or something like that. You would not have actually been able to see the importance of experience quite as easily by having been given its opposite. Um, I don't know. That's hard to say. I I mean, 
I was in it for a bit, but it definitely wasn't the you know bulk of my formative life. Um, yeah. So I think inerrancy is really at the root of a lot of dissonance regarding experience. I would say to be a Christian who believes in inerrancy is to live in a constant state of tremendous cognitive dissonance. And well, maybe not for it some depend, people for it, it, depending how, on depending how, much how you thoughtful think about you are. It. Yes. Yeah. Or not just thoughtful, just depending on constitutionally how much you need to be thinking about. Yes. It that, like that's that. a better way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Let's talk about the podcast a little bit. By the time this airs, it's, it's out. It's called carry the fire and the three lenses. And we've you know, been talking about this, the good, the true and the beautiful. Those are sort of the, the foundational pillars for the show. It's, it's what you want to use as your lens for who you choose to interview and what you choose to talk about. People can go listen to the introductory, like episode zero of Carry the Fire, where I'm interviewing you and we're going to talk more directly about those three things there. But here, I want to talk about those three things as it relates to experience. So, how do you think of the relationship between taking your experience seriously about true things? good things and beautiful things. And I, if you can go one at a time, that'd be great. Yeah, we'll see if I can go one at a time. I mean, part of the the intrigue with the good, the true, and the beautiful is that, at least classically, philosophically, they're almost, I mean, you, you have separate streams of study, uh, schools of study, you have you know, aesthetics, ethics, logic. But at the end of the day, kind of the precursor transcendental is, is oneness. And like that all these things are right. essentially doing the same thing it's almost different lenses mm -hmm. of looking at the the one thing that is um, oh, that's cool yeah so and if something's really beautiful in some sense isn't it more likely to be true and good yes and, and good and right yeah so yeah. there's an intrinsic melding of all those things it's almost as if they're i don't know maybe three flowers coming out of the same branch or something it's it's all the same plant but i think it's hard to to separate them at a certain point from experience because part of what I'm doing by using that is just saying, I'm talking about value, I think, what has intrinsic value as a human being. And so those things are going to be like when I experience something beautiful in nature or in a song or when something truly good is done to me or done by me and the way that we relate to each other. I mean, I think truth, truth is an interesting one because I think that desire for for knowledge for to find out what is really going on is such a good desire and is just part of us and I think that can get twisted in the sense of you're really trying to find a concrete answer to just grab onto and that's where that one kind of go off the rails but that that feeling of wanting to know what's actually going on I think everyone has that to one degree or another. Uh, and so these things, the good, the true, and the beautiful, they just are the things that, it's buckets of, of putting value in almost, um, just ways of, of talking about that. What actually matters? What is important? I would say, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe you're, you're good at being devil's advocate. You've got something that you could put outside of that. But I, I don't know if there is anything. I think anything valuable that you want to talk about, you can talk about through those, those lenses. Don't put me on the spot. I'd have to think about that okay. and try and come up with something valuable that's neither true nor good nor beautiful. It's a big, huh. I mean, that's, it's casting a, a wide net. How about this? There are certainly true things that sure as hell don't seem beautiful. Yes. And so well, I, maybe 
you know, maybe there's a there's a different sense of true, right? There's like true north, which is like uh, you could get closer or further from true north. And then there's like accurate. And a lot of accurate things really suck. I mean, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, it, it's really true that like we're not very rational creatures and the way that our brains are structured, uh, it's very easy to become biased and prejudiced because of these mental shortcuts we use to save energy. Yeah. That's true. But, it's not very good or beautiful. Well, but learning it is is good. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Becoming aware of it. Although, yeah, I mean, there is sort of some bad news about how much of that you can really change yeah. in that in the really implicit stuff. Or learning about the Holocaust can be true. And it, there's just nothing. I mean, it's good to learn about it. Exactly. Well, and, so, and, that's, about it. and that's something that I think is an important way to talk about what's true and its relationship to the good. If you don't retain a handle on, on what's true that's happened in the past, you lose a handle on what is good in the present or what should be. Yeah. I mean, you see that uh, rampantly, I think, with the way we view American history. We have this whitewashed version of so much of it, and it perpetuates evil. So I, this yeah. is this is kind of the way I'm saying that they're all interconnected. Is You can't get the good a lot of times without getting the true. So like uh, even going back to what we're saying about, you know, do unto others as you would have them or as they would have you do unto them. Like you can't do that without knowing what's true of what they would want. I would say, I don't think we can ever see them totally unified, but we can make a lot of connections between the three. Well, Dustin, thank you so much, man. What an awesome and just, I don't know, long time coming, maybe conversation between the two of us about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so the, the show's Carry the Fire. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about that for, for people? It's it's a brand new podcast, and it's exciting. Yeah, it's terrifying. I'm really excited about it. I don't know if you've ever heard the, anyone say, like, if you have an idea and it won't go away, like, there's something there. You know, like, yeah, this was definitely one of those things. Like, once it got in there, it was like, it's not going away. You got you to gotta do this, even though it's scary and whatever. So I think it's one of the scariest things I've ever done. I believe it. Yeah. I'm five on the Enneagram, and so my way of interacting with the world is being overprepared, and like I want to feel a mastery in whatever thing I'm talking about or doing, and so I have this absurd desire to come into each of these conversations with the guests and want to know more than they do about what they know, which is crazy. A fool's errand, probably. Yeah. Well, what's sad about it is I, if it was just a conversation between me and them, I don't think I would feel that. I would just be curious. And so that's the thing. It's the I'm, public performance part. Yeah, so yeah. It's, I've got to curate that. Like, I need to go into this just curious and excited the way I naturally would be just to talk to this person. And then I get to share that with everyone else. Um, yeah, and then if you do that, you're actually a better avatar for the listener anyway. Yeah. I'm sure that people a lot of times tune out, tune me out when I'm doing that, when I'm performing more and showing the guest, like how much I know about their mm-hmm. subject and, and hoping that they will tell me how smart I am at the end. And that's all ego and, <laughs> and bullshit and probably doesn't even make the show better, frankly. No, totally. And I, so that's going into it. I know that that's the temptation and I've got to figure out how much preparation is, is helpful and going to make an interesting conversation and how much is uh, me just putting yeah, my ego out there. Well, it's going to be fun and interesting to see how that goes for you. <laughs> I'll text you and let you know when I think you're bloviating. Thank you. And keep you, <laughs> I'll keep you on track. All right, dude. Well, appreciate that. If people want to hear us chat about your show, that is episode zero. It's live now 
on the Carry the Fire podcast feed. That's much shorter than this one. And also we'll look forward to having you back as a patron to talk uh, more thrice and, and songwriting stuff. So thanks, man. Cool. Thanks, man. Just letting that outro music play a little longer because I love the song. It's called Hurricane. It's by Thrice. It's on their 2016 record, To Be Everywhere is to Be Nowhere, something like that. Anyway, all the music on today's episode, other than the little intro that you hear every week, is Thrice music. It's songs by Thrice. Um, You should check out Dustin's podcast, Carry the Fire, anywhere you find podcasts. And again, I'm interviewing him on episode zero. Short little interview about kind of what he's doing there. Um, Thank you to Josh Gilbert for not only editing this conversation, but doing it quickly when I needed him to so that we could uh, work in tandem with Dustin and his producer, Andy, on timing. And again, if you want to hear that patron-only interview with Dustin, patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. Please share these episodes with friends and family. I hope that they can spark really interesting conversations and let me know how all that's going. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you guys next week with the episode called psychedelics and other spiritual technologies. Yeah, get ready.